Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Our topic today is the Portuguese colonial empire and the initial voyages of discovery. Europeans boarding these uh, ships, these sailing ships, and leaving Europe to explore foreign lands. And we're going to talk about why and how Portugal got a head start on this process, where they explored, who they traded with, and kind of how they established the first big European um, colonial trading empire off the shores of Europe. Um, Our time period is roughly the 15th century, and we're going to stop around the late 16th century. And you'll find out why in a second. So, let's get started with the Portuguese colonial empire. We're going to start with the fact that the Portuguese, uh, by the early 1400s, had very skilled sailors, soldiers, and a strong government. During the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, uh, Arab warriors, uh, North African warriors, uh, they were called the Moors. They invaded the Iberian Peninsula from Morocco, so from the south. When people say Iberia or the Iberian Peninsula, they're just talking about that huge piece of land that comes off of Europe, so comes off of France, and it contains Spain and Portugal. In Roman times, it was the province of Hispania, uh, which is where we get, you know, the word Hispanic or uh, things like that. Um, This process, so the kings and the nobles of what would later become Spain and Portugal, uh, Spain as the United Kingdom didn't exist yet. You know, there were Spanish kingdoms like uh, Leon and Castile and Aragon, stuff like that. And the Spanish weren't able to actually push out the Moors in a series of wars called uh, La Reconquista. They weren't able to complete that process until 1492. But on the Portuguese side of things, they were able to push out the Moors much, much earlier. Uh, By 1249, the reconquest of Portugal was actually completed uh, in the area that would later become Portugal. They pushed them all the way uh, to a place called the Pillars of Hercules, which is kind of like the entrance of the Mediterranean uh, around Gibraltar. Uh, In doing this, you know, these Portuguese knights had decades, if not centuries, of combat experience, and they were always kind of on the forefront. And this is also true of the Spanish. Uh, When the conquistadors left Spain and started conquering places like Hispaniola and Mexico and Peru, a lot of these guys were combat veterans of the Reconquista against the Moors. So this is definitely true for Portugal. They had an established long-standing maritime tradition and a pool, a dedicated pool of skilled sailors. When you look at the colonial era, the ages of discovery, uh, things like that, a lot of these countries struggle to maintain professional armies and standing armies to govern their colonies. But even more rare and even more difficult to find were skilled sailors. And Portugal had a lot of these. I think most importantly, though, is the power of the Portuguese monarchy. Uh, according to Rodzins, again, quote, 
by the 1480s, the Portuguese monarchy was the strongest and most centralized government in Europe, with the best control over the aristocratic competitors for political authority and considerable power over the commercial groups in the country as well, end quote. So you see uh, Portugal being a small country, uh, the, the kings through a lot of relationships with the classes they, they ruled over. And because there weren't so many competing factions and claimants for the throne that typically afflict monarchies, I mean, this has happened all over the place, Spain, France, England. It just so happens that by this time in history, the Portuguese monarchy was uh, considered legitimate, stable, secure. Um, they had the, arist the aristocracy kind of under their thumb. Um, they, you had a lot of state support for commercial enterprises. And a perfect example of this was a uh, Prince Enrique, Henry the Navigator, who was an enthusiastic sailor. Uh, he was really into ships and exploration. And he was one of the major royal pushes behind this, this kind of, we need to leave our shores and see what's out there. It's incredible in this time period, uh, 14, 15, 16, 1700s, what these nations can accomplish when they have a king who's enthusiastic about their cause. A lot of times when in the ebb and flow of these European states setting up colonies, sometimes their colonies decay, and it's because the kings become either preoccupied with Europe or they start all these costly wars, or they're just not interested in colonization or the new world but it's just incredible kind of what you can accomplish when you have a king who's who's standing uh behind you uh, in the case of columbus it was isabella and ferdinand and in the case of a lot of these early portuguese explorers it was henry the navigator as he is known to history One of the things that's really interesting to me as I was doing research for this topic is traditionally the narrative that said uh, that's told in history books is that European exploration of the world started with the Vikings in like the 11th century and then pretty much nothing happened until the Portuguese. <laughs> but in the course of doing uh, this research, I was amazed to find that the Italians had already kind of thought of this hmm we need to leave europe we need better routes to the east uh the middle east and the eastern mediterranean is controlled by the, the the saracens or the arabs and then later on the turks the ottoman turks apparently uh in 1291 the venetians came up with a very ambitious concept of um they wanted to go around africa and asia to get around this this uh trade monopoly that the arabs had in the middle east uh venice was one of the major major trading powers of europe in the middle ages venice and genoa or genoa as it's called uh these are both really powerful Italian city-states, uh, very much merchant states in northern Italy. And they really, I don't want to say completely monopolized Mediterranean trade, but definitely on the European side of things, were able to throw their weight around a lot more than a lot of their competitors in the Middle Ages. Well, they had already thought of, hmm, what happens if we go around Africa? 
There were a bunch of rich Venetians that hired a captain called Vivaldi or Vivaldo. Uh, his, his real name apparently is lost to history. And they sent him out into the Atlantic to find a route to India. So you see this is happening in 1291, which is uh, 200 years before Columbus, uh, when, when the king and queen of Spain sent him out. Hey, go find a route to India. Um, so this is 200 years before, 1291. Well, he disappeared. Nobody knows what's happened to him. Uh, you know, it's it's likely that he ran aground and and they died. Or I, well, actually, I think it's more likely ship went down in a storm. Um, ship technology in 1291 wasn't nearly advanced as like later in the period we're talking about Portugal and Spain. A lot of these ships weren't able yet to do these long oceanic voyages. They were more able to do coastal voyages or just uh, sail around in the Mediterranean because the Mediterranean is much uh, calmer waters than the open Atlantic or the open Pacific or anything like that. So this guy disappears. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he was abducted by aliens. We don't know. <laughs> in 1315, his son went out to search for his father and the route. Well, what do you think happened to the son? Yeah, he also disappeared. So now we have two disappeared Venetian captains that have gone down in history. Um, right around the same time, the Genoese, so one of the uh, major competitors to Venice, they were also kind of trying to do the same thing. In 1312, there was an explorer called Lanzarotto Malacello, and he discovered the Canary Islands, which are southwest of the Pillars of Hercules in the open Atlantic. And remember, I said the Pillars of Hercules is a landmark uh, near Gibraltar, and it kind of marks the official entrance to the Mediterranean. Well, if you go a little past that, and to the south and to the west of Spain and Portugal, you get the Canary Islands. And it, it eventually this would be colonized by Spain. Um, and in fact, the Canaries, uh, according to Rodzins, were in many ways the proving grounds for the conquistadors of the Caribbean, Mexico, and Peru that came a bit later. But we're not talking about that right now. The first overseas colony of Portugal was Ceuta. Um, it's in the lands that are now called Morocco. And um, this area was eventually taken by the Portuguese. And it was a way for... It was almost like a prototype for Portuguese knights and Portuguese sailors and Portuguese administrators of how to develop and overseas possession. By 1425, the Portuguese began to colonize the island of Madeira in the Atlantic. And if you want to know where Madeira is, basically just find a map, find Morocco, Find the cities of Casablanca and Marrakesh, and then just look a bit west in the ocean, and there's Madeira. And they started to develop a resource there. You know it, you love it, it's sugar. So they started growing sugar, and by 1455, they were, start, they were able to start exporting it to Europe. And that's a huge deal, because it's, it's kind of like the, this was the first of the sugar islands, which, like that word sugar island is a lot more famous when you're talking about the Caribbean. Uh, originally, the Italians had figured out kind of a little bit on how to make sugar, but um, it was just so rare and it was so expensive that 
the Europeans weren't really able to enjoy this until they could start growing it uh, overseas. And the demand was huge. But anyway, enough about sugar. Uh, starting in the 1440s, now uh, equipped with the new caravels, the, the two main engines of Portuguese and indeed Spanish exploration were these two ship designs called the caravel and the carrack. Um, and these were super important. I would very much encourage you, if you really want to learn about the Age of Discovery, you have to know about these two types of ships. Uh, but very, very, very briefly, uh, up until this point, the, the trading ships of the Mediterranean were often muscle-powered, or they used lateen sails. Lateen sails are basically, it's like a triangle of sail, of fabric, and it runs like a, uh, a long like with the deck of the ship, so fore to aft, um, whereas square-rigged sails were square and they run across the deck, like if that makes sense. It's that, you know, that's kind of what you think of when you think of these, these ships of exploration is you have the deck and then crossing over it are these big square sails. Well, that was one of the developments. Carracks and caravels could haul more cargo. You could have more sailors. Um, you could put guns on them. A lot of these uh, Mediterranean galleys, like muscle-powered ships with oars and stuff, a lot of times they were just too flimsy to put like serious cannons on them. Um, and they sat a bit lower in the water. When you had carracks and caravels, you started having what, what they call these high-walled ships with, uh, with guns on them. And eventually it, the technology got more and more advanced where you could have multiple gun decks and gun ports like uh, you see this all the time in pirate movies, you'll see like these little windows on the side of the ship and then they flip open and then they wheel a cannon out. Uh, and that was just a huge development because now you could double or triple the number of guns you could have on a ship instead of just all of them being on the deck. Anyway, little, uh, little digression, little tangent there, but definitely the key thing to take away from this is Carracks and Caravels, the engines of European exploration for centuries. The Portuguese made it, uh, they started going further and further down the coast of Africa. So by the 1440s, they had begun to buy slaves from African traders for the Por Portuguese home uh, market. And now they were trading for gold directly um, with the Africans for this gold that came from sub-Saharan gold mines that were it, like inland. Uh, and when I say sub-Saharan, uh, when you talk about political science or history, sub-Saharan just means um, the Africa below North Africa. So below the, the, the Arab lands of North Africa, below the Sahara Desert. Uh, in older texts, they used to call it Black Africa uh, because the people who lived there were Black. Uh, and this was different from North Africa where the people were, were mostly Arabs. So that's kind of like keep that in your mind. But in any case, by this point, the Portuguese... They were buying gold directly from these sub-Saharan kingdoms. Whereas in the past, that gold had to go through Muslim and Arab traders to make its way to Europe. So they were able to make a lot of money off this by cutting out the middleman. They set up these things, these like fortified African trading posts that they called fitorias uh, or fitorias. And to me, it always just makes me think of the word factory. These were kind of bases of Portuguese power all along the coast of Africa. And each one was used as a stepping stone for the next one. 
to go further and further and further down south. They started getting, uh, like I said, gold. They started importing slaves and they started getting uh, uh, an ever-increasing taste for pepper because now uh, pepper was becoming more common in the markets that they were encountering as you got closer and closer and closer to the source. According to Rodzins, um, I, well, I'm just going to read a little bit about the, the slave trade. Uh, that the Portuguese were one of the first European peoples to really pioneer this slave trade when they were exploring West Africa and they encountered these, these West African kings. Quote, The Portuguese supplied the transport and marketing services, but Africans supplied the slaves themselves. Only very early on are there a few instances of Portuguese crews kidnapping their own slaves forcibly. What drove the creation of slaves for sale were African laws and wars. Unlike other cultures, Africans below the Sahara held people as property, not land. Thus, African rulers and nobles all owned masses of slaves, while lands were held in common by any political grouping migrating into them. In warfare, the object was to capture people rather than territory. There were many such rulers with huge numbers of slaves, and a small proportion of these slaves was always surplus to local labor and so readily available for trade with outsiders for goods that were seen as exotic or luxurious. These marginal numbers of slaves came to hundreds of thousands, eventually to millions for the Portuguese and other European traders, end quote. So we see here it's, um, it was kind of just like a, a trading arrangement. These Africans were trading slaves and gold and stuff for a lot of stuff that the Portuguese had that they they either didn't have or couldn't make or anything like that. And this pattern of negotiating and dealing with local leaders was eventually copied and repeated again by the Spanish, then the Dutch, then the French and English. So it expands from this small little thing at first to, woof, by the 1700s, the slave trade was just absolutely huge. And it led to millions of people being taken and sold across the Atlantic to fuel all of these new colonies in the New World. What's interesting here in the relationship between the Portuguese explorers and traders and the West African kings is a lot of times you get the idea that, you know, the Europeans were just so far ahead technologically that they could boss around these West African kings. But from what I'm reading, that's not really true. It's What is true is that the Africans could not compete in any way with the Portuguese ships, these high-walled ships with these black powder cannons and stuff like that. But on land, the Portuguese numbers were low and uh, portable firearms were still so primitive that there are many examples of them just getting stomped by, by these bands of African warriors when they make them angry. So Rodzins makes the important point that in the establishment of these trading posts, quote, assuring the goodwill of the African political elite was of key importance to the Portuguese, end quote. So it, it really, at this stage in history, maybe it was because of a cultural policy of the Portuguese. More likely, I think it's just because they weren't able to, like the technology and the numbers weren't there yet. But they had to keep these these West African kings happy. And they did this through gifts and, and uh, 
symbolic gestures and ceremonies and flattery and stuff like that. Uh, the Portuguese used a lot of the experience that they gained in Africa and, and, and eventually moved beyond expanding into the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. In 1494, they did sign a treaty with Spain called the Treaty of Tordesillas. And what they did is that <laughs> they divided the world. They drew this north-south line. And to the Spanish, they said, everything west of this line is for the Spanish and everything east of this line is for the Portuguese. And the line ran just east of the West Indies, so like the Caribbean. And this was right, right after Columbus and, and him going to the Caribbean and stuff like that. In the short term, uh, for the Portuguese, they were like, oh, well, of course. Like, we know all of this stuff lies to the east. We know there's tons of money and spices and gold and silk to the east. Whereas Columbus, well, you went there with your three piddly little ships. And yeah, maybe you found one or two things. Again, this is 1494. Nobody really knows the vast vast continent that existed west of this treaty line yet so the only reason i'm saying that is because when the treaty was signed uh like if i was there present i'd be like well obviously portugal's getting the better deal here but i think in the long run uh spain got the better deal um but it's just one of those things of history like people just didn't know about the vast riches of north america central america south america like they they just didn't know yet. Um, when the Portuguese went to Asia, they encountered all sorts of different people from all sorts of different religions. Um, and this kind of forced them to, in many cases, uh, be polite, because a lot of these lands that they were running into, to their surprise, had way more people than Portugal and uh, way more resources and stuff like that with these wealthy wealthy powerful kings so uh that's interesting by this point in our story the portuguese have made it around the southern tip of africa and they're starting to go to places like the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, places like Aden and Hormuz. They captured Colombo in 1518, which is on the island of Ceylon, uh, which is now called Sri Lanka. And by this point, a lot of their major bases in this area were in place. Uh, they set up a colony, a little trading base, a trading post in China called Macau. And they reached it in 1517, and it took them 40 years of kind of haggling, wheeling and dealing, negotiating with the Chinese emperors. But by 1557, they got their extraterritorial rights from the Chinese emperor for this base at Macau. And Macau still exists today. And this was, I think, the major kind of their major power base in dealing with uh, the Chinese empire. In Japan, in 1542, they set up uh, trading posts and mission st uh, stations kind of in Japan. So to the Japanese, they brought uh, gunpowder technology, among other things. And they were the exclusive kind of European traders with the Japanese for a long, long time until the Dutch got there 
uh, about a century later. And for details of this, I would refer you to the, the previous episode on the Dutch East India Company, because the Japanese were pretty isolationist and they preferred to just have contact with like one band, one type of European, and that was it. It was a lot easier to control the flow of goods and ideas into Japan, and it was a lot easier to present a united front to these outsiders who wanted to trade for things. But in any case, the Portuguese were in Japan from 1542 to 1640. Now we're going to talk about the Spice Islands, and this is probably where the Portuguese made uh, the most money. So in places that are now called uh, Java, Indonesia, Uh, places like that. Well, at the time, they were called the Spice Islands because this was really the only place in the world where you could get things like cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, uh, mace. And again, I, I talked about this in the episode on the Dutch East India Company. Well, the Portuguese uh, had a bunch of skirmishes with the Spanish in this area, and they even fought with local kings. And there is a crazy story of this uh, Portuguese explorer attacking places like Malacca. And they ran into this king um, when this king, the Sultan, appeared in person with his secret weapon. Uh, it was a full force of war elephants. Well, quote, as the huge beasts bore down on the astonished Portuguese, a certain Fernão Gomes de Lemos frantically jabbed the lead animal in the eye with his pike, an instrument developed originally to halt cavalry charges in Europe. As the animal screamed and reared, he jabbed it in the tender parts. Other Portuguese quickly emulated his tactics and wounded the other lead elephants. Trumpeting wildly, the animals wheeled and trampled the armies behind them. 28 Portuguese had been killed outright, and many were wounded, some fatally, with poisoned arrows. End quote. So this is the conflict. Uh, this is the land assault between the Portuguese and the native inhabitants on Malacca. And it was taken by the Portuguese and a lot of these tactics of like how to intimidate and divide and conquer were later used by Hernan Cortes in Mexico. But it's just the reason why I'm sharing the story is because how crazy is that? You're a Portuguese sailor or a soldier. You go on this ship. It takes months of bad food and stuff like that. You end up in this foreign sun-drenched land where it's just super hot Uh <laughs> And you get into a fight, a war with the local king, and you're on land, and they unleash these elephants at you, and, you know, your buddy jabs one in the eye, and then all, all hell breaks loose. And then even after the battle, you talk to your friends, and a bunch of them, you find the arrows they've been shot with were coated in poison. Like, anyway, just how crazy is that? It's just so unfortunate that so many of these colonial encounters resulted in violence. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, sometimes it's easy to look back with, with modern hindsight and be like, well, couldn't they just work out a deal? Uh, a lot of times when you have people who are only meeting each other for the first time and everybody's edgy, very small misunderstandings can just escalate into conflict. I don't know if that's what happened in this case. Uh, a lot of times, though, the political elites of both sides kind of recognize the benefit of trade. So I don't want you to think that, you know, the Europeans, like literally everywhere they went, they just killed everybody and took the land and took the gold. Uh, a lot of times 
you know, and, and a lot of times this wasn't even benevolent. It was because the Europeans recognized they were not strong enough to overpower the local rulers. But a lot of times they they went ahead and just made deals and they, they tried to be peaceful because war just wasn't profitable at that particular time and place. All right, so at the peak of Portuguese colonial power in the mid-16th century, scholar Michael Pearson concludes that, quote, Portugal finished up with a string of some 50 forts and fortified areas, and a total fleet of up to 100 ships of various sizes in different areas, end quote. The total number of Portuguese in these bases was estimated to be about 10,000. During uh, the period of 1513 and 1603, so a good 90 years there, the imports from the Spice Islands uh, were as follows. I'm just going to give you kind of a general percentages. Uh, 65 to 89 percent pepper. And the rest was ginger, cinnamon, and um, miscellaneous spices, mostly nutmeg, cloves, and mace. Uh, And then after 1587, there was a portion of this that was silk, like textiles. Um, But yeah, like wars were being fought, ships were being built, kings were were fighting each other for all of these things that today you have uh, in your spice rack. (laughs) You know, uh, pepper, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and mace. You know, stuff you put in your pumpkin spice cake or whatever. Like people used to kill each other over this. So... That's just interesting. So what happened to the Portuguese? Like, you know, did this empire last forever? Uh, No, it didn't. Uh, In the 1580s, Portugal, the crown of Portugal was taken over by the crown of Spain. So Philip II of Spain was now kind of running uh, both countries. And it wasn't until 1640 that Portugal regained its independence. So yeah, there was a period where they kind of disappeared and ceased to exist as as their own independent country. Remember all those places I said earlier that uh, they were setting up bases in, in the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and uh, the Spice Islands and the Far East, the Pacific Ocean, stuff like that. Well... Here's what later happened to those places. <laughs> in 1600, and again, this is from Rodson's, uh, in 1600, the English East India Company, which was actually based on the Portuguese model, began to set up rival trading stations in India. Then, in 1602, this was followed up by the Dutch United East India Company that started competing with them. In 1605... Uh, the Dutch captured Portuguese Ambon and Tidor in the valuable spice islands of Indonesia. So you see, um, already by 1605, the Dutch are setting up bases in in these super profitable spice islands. Um, In 1622, the Persians drove the Portuguese permanently from the Gulf of Persia. In 1640, the Japanese, uh, through a chain of events and a change of heart, they expelled the Portuguese uh, from the Japanese home islands. They said, no, we're not going to deal with you anymore. Uh, Now we're going to deal with the Dutch. In 1641, the Dutch took Malacca from them. So that place I mentioned earlier, well, now the Dutch have taken it from them and they're going to try to set up their own spice monopoly. And uh, again, I keep bringing up this episode. I mean, it really was the previous one I recorded, 
But uh, this was a process of, of the Dutch trying to muscle their way into the spice monopoly and take uh, what they call like market share, I guess, away from the Portuguese. In 1658, the Dutch captured Ceylon as well. So remember I mentioned that place, Colombo, that uh, the Portuguese set up a base. Well, that was in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. That was taken by the Dutch. And then finally, by the end of the 17th century, the English had set up and fortified competing bases at Madras, Calcutta, and Bombay in India to compete with the main Portuguese base there, which is called Goa. And actually to this day, Uh, A lot of Indians from Goa uh, have Portuguese names and are Roman Catholic. So, you know, you kind of see that that lasting effect to this day. The prophets, the Portuguese people, you know, they leveled off, but they but they stayed healthy. It's like, yes, they were losing a lot of stuff, but they were still making a lot of money. It's just they weren't like, you know, the only the only game in town kind of like they were at the very beginning of this process. The biggest Portuguese achievement in the New World was, without a doubt, the colony of Brazil. So, in the very, very early 16th century, so, you know, we're talking 1501, there was uh, an expedition to Brazil from Portugal, and they brought back a cargo of Brazil wood, uh, which was used to make um, this cloth dye for wool in Europe. And it was cut and harvested by native peoples in Brazil and then traded to the Portuguese. Well, they were pretty interested in that, but not as interested as what came later, which was, of course, sugar. Um, The first kind of colonists started appearing in 1530 when the Portuguese crowns appointed their first Brazilian governor, Alfonso de Souza. And they sent with him 400 settlers. And (laughs) the book says that these are dubious settlers. A lot of them were convicts and stuff. So it's like, you kind of see uh, the British with Australia. They weren't the only ones to be like, ah, we have to settle a new land. I don't know, empty the jails. Um, so yeah, anyway, in 1530, they have their first governor. By 1570, sugar planting uh, began to expand rapidly to the point where within a few years, Brazil had become Europe's largest single sugar producer. Um, most of the labor uh, came increasingly from Africa. So they started importing more and more and more slaves and laborers. And that's why today, when you look at the Brazilian people, they can literally be any color. (laughs) Like you have Brazilians who are white as snow and you have Brazilians that are super black. Like it's just, uh, it it really was a a melting pot uh, culture. In 1570, uh, there were already as many as 3,000 African slaves in Brazil. And in 1572, Brazil already had eight towns, 207,600 Portuguese settlers, and 6,000 other people working for them. Um, And it just, the wealth of Brazil just went up and up and up from there. Uh, So much so that the Dutch, during their golden age, remember, in the mid-1600s, they uh, actually tried to conquer Brazil. Uh, They tried to conquer it between 1624 and 1654. 
Well, they were repelled, and the Portuguese were able to hold on to Brazil. And, well, it was good for them because a bit later, in the 1690s, they found huge gold deposits uh, in a place called Minas Gerais. I think that's how it's pronounced. And then, to make it even better, later on in the 1730s, ah, geez, they found diamonds. So now you have this huge colony where the population is just growing, it's it's successful, you're able to compete in the New World trade markets with the Spanish, and you've got sugar, gold, and diamonds. Um, this was able to kind of fuel a lot of the further Portuguese colonial development efforts uh, in the area. And like the Portuguese colony uh, at Brazil was so important that from 1808 to 1821, the Portuguese monarchy itself took up temporary residence in Brazil. So you see, Brazil became so important that the Portuguese monarchy, when they had to uh, leave from 1808 to 1821, they, they decided to go live in Brazil. That would be the equivalent of you know, the British royal family saying, okay, uh, there's a crisis, we have to leave, uh, where are we going to go live? And of all the British Commonwealth dominions, they pick, you know, Canada or New Zealand. Like, it's it's just a, it's just a really big deal. And over the centuries, you start to see the complete eclipsing of power, uh, like Brazil just becomes more and more powerful than the original homeland, um, Portugal. So that now, in the 21st century, Brazil has many, many, many times the people, resources, economy uh, of Portugal. Like many, many times over. Uh, and it's it's just a much more powerful country as well in world affairs. So, yeah, definitely the biggest uh, Portuguese achievement in the New World was Brazil. Today, as a result of the Portuguese colonial empire, the Portuguese language is estimated to be spoken by around 230 million people around the world as a native tongue, and about 250-252 million speakers in total. It's the ninth most spoken language in the world, and the second most spoken Romance language in terms of native speakers after Spanish. And by Romance language, we mean uh, like Latin languages derived from the language of the Romans. So this includes Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, Romanian, stuff like that. Brazil has the largest population of Portuguese speakers, uh, about 210 million. Angola is home to about 18 million speakers. And Portugal and Mozambique both have about 10 million speakers. Uh, to put that in perspective, <laughs> the Brazilian city of Sao Paulo alone has a population of 12 million. Portuguese is an official language in 10 countries and territories, including Brazil, Mozambique, Angola, Portugal, Guinea-Bissau, East Timor, Equatorial Guinea, Macau, Cape Verde, and Sao Tome and Principe. And yes, you know, there are some differences from uh, between Portuguese and uh, Brazilian uh, Portuguese, <laughs> Portugal Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese. Yes, there are some differences, but uh, they can still understand each other. Like the, the two dialects are still what they call mutually intelligible. 
All right, well, that's all I have for you today. Uh, a lot of the inspiration for this episode actually came from the previous episode on the Dutch East India Company. Uh, I find the, the Age of Discovery to just be absolutely fascinating. So I really hope you enjoyed it. And uh, maybe in a future episode, I don't know, I might tackle kind of the the first few colonies of uh, maybe England or France or Spain or something like that. But we'll have to see. This has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bite sized history podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.